Thanks for checking out this message from City on a Hill Church International. For ways to connect and get involved in the life of our church, please go to our website, coah.co.za. Right, can you hear me, everyone? Can you hear me okay like this, or do I, need, I don't need to use the mic, eh? No, cool. Um, I was grateful for Job, not Job, Europe, <laughs> in English, Job, <laughs> Uh, for taking the class last week. Um, I was still down at uh, looking at the sea, at uh, holding the wall with a whole bunch of pastors. They had a wonderful time. So what I want to, um, if you don't mind, I, I might be going over a little bit of stuff, but uh, I checked out what, what Job did, and I spoke to one or two people. So if I repeat a few things, just excuse it, okay? Then you'll get it double. I just wanted to make absolutely sure this uh, book of Romans is the most incredible, incredible book. If you can kind of master Romans, you'll, you'll just about everything you need in terms of the gospel, in terms of the Christian life, the Christian walk, uh, like from A to Z in a way. Um, so I, I might be repeating some things, so we're going to go over a bit of chapter one tonight and... Um, like I say, if, if you've heard it before, that's fine. Will you turn with me in your Bibles? And we're just going to read one section together where Paul really gets into the nub of it. So what you'll find is Paul, he's like a lawyer. And he's preparing a case against man. That's what he's doing. Very methodical. I'm pretty sure you have told you last week that out of all Paul's writings, Romans is the most methodical. That is the distillation of all his thought. That is, that is Paul with his great mind and the man of the Spirit and greatly anointed has processed the gospel. You remember, in fact, um, Tom read that scripture this morning about Paul when he gives his testimony. A Jew of Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was highly trained. He probably in today's world would have been like, uh, had a doctorate or a professor. He was trained under one of the greatest teachers, Gamaliel. So he was a highly trained man, a very clever man. And God chose him to, to spread the gospel to the Gentiles, right out of his faith, by the way, into the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And, you know, Paul had a lot of time for, for himself. He spent three years alone in Galatia. You can do a lot in three years when you're processing your thoughts. So then he went and he met the other apostles, and together they processed the gospel. And, and that's what Romans is. It's like this, this package of the full gospel life. Okay. And um, so let's read then from verse 18 in chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Now, I know you have touched on that, and so no man's got any excuse. He said, I didn't know about God, blah, blah, blah. God's able to reveal himself through his very creation. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. 
So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree, they are those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So I want to just dive in and I want to share this quote from um, John Piper. He says, It is simply the great biblical summary of the great gospel and is therefore preeminently the foundation of the church with Christ as the cornerstone. So as I said in the beginning, this is a distillation. It's all of Paul's thought, all of what he's processed through the Holy Spirit uh, in Christ. And so this is, this is a summary of the great gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So to give you a quick outline, I don't know if you did that last week, but it's good to just get it into our minds. So um, this is, this is uh, the outline. Chapter 1 is about the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation, right? Uh, chapter 2 we look at next week. It's about the judgment. You'll see where we end you'll see Paul's already talking about judgment in chapter 1. He's already talking about the wrath of God against all ungodliness, right? And that's judgment because God's wrath is against ungodliness and wickedness. In chapter 2, he carries it over and he massages in this whole understanding of God's judgment. And we'll look at that next week. Chapter 3 is God's righteousness upheld. Chapter 4 is the justification by faith and the whole uh, amazing journey of um, Abraham. He, he likens that whole journey to the, the journey of faith with Abraham. Chapter 5 is that wonderful chapter. It says, therefore, you, you'll notice in Romans, certain chapters begin with therefore. In chapter, uh, in chapter 5, it says, therefore, you have peace with God because you've been justified. So when you see a therefore, you must ask what it's there for. <laughs> and when he says therefore, he's built an argument. 
And then when he says in chapter 5, when you are justified, you've got peace with God, that's the summing up. That's the conclusion of what he's built up. Same thing later on, chapter 8. When you understand how you've been forgiven and justified and made righteous, which we'll go through because it's key to our Christian walk. Um, chapter 8 says, can anyone, do you know it off your head? Therefore, there is no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. So why does he say therefore at that point? It's because he's built up from chapter 5 about uh, assurance of salvation and what Christ has done. And we, we, we have not earned the salvation. And we're going to look at that in depth. We, we are the righteousness of Christ. And we'll look at that because that's absolutely key to our faith. And so he says in the light of that, therefore there's no condemnation to those in Christ. Because you've been set, set free from the law of sin and death. Um, chapter, chapter 6 is dead to sin, alive to Christ. It's also this amazing thing of being baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit, which is the most incredible thing to me. Um, uh, chapter 7, the place of the law. Uh, you, know, you know that scripture where he says, the good I want to do, I can't. Uh, the, the, you know that one? And, oh, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Okay, you know that one? Uh, and then he's, he's processed that in chapter 7 about the law. We're no longer married to the law. We're married to Christ. We've been released. And he says, therefore, in the light of that, no condemnation. Right? So that's, then chapter 8 is um, the ministry of the Spirit. And that's where he talks this wonderful thing about, about um, assurance of salvation. We've not received the Spirit to fall back into fear. You see, it goes back to chapter 7 about the law, and we'll look at that. You see, we've not received the spirit to fall back into fear, but a spirit of sonship, which includes daughtership, by the way. It's just a generic term. Sonship. Whereby, we, uh, where, where the spirit helps us in our weakness. Not that one, sorry. Um, when the spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are children of God, where we can cry, Abba, Father. So that's that wonderful chapter uh, on, on assurance. Then in chapter 9 to 11, you've got God's plan for both Jews and Gentiles. And then... In closing, 12 to 15, the varied responsibilities of the Christian life. Right. So, as I said, Paul is like a lawyer. He, he wants to show that man has violated his relationship with God in the deepest possible way. And so he's building a case to show what a desperate state we're in. So before God, man is totally guilty as a sinner and he's sentenced to die an eternal death. And so Paul is going to argue this case. But as we'll see, the wonderful thing is having argued the case, he presents us with this wonderful answer in Christ. So that's why at the outset Paul speaks of the power of the gospel. It's interesting that Right in chapter 1, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to salvation. And then he gets into all the problems and the nonsense. And he wants to show, he wants to show the depth of the fracture of sin. And when we have an understanding of that and compare it to this incredible righteousness that is, is placed upon us, then you see the miracle of the gospel. So chapter 1, 
I want to just quickly tell you about Martin Luther. I don't know if you discussed that last week. You know, there were a number of people down the ages who got radically affected by Romans. And uh, St. Augustine, a great church father from our own continent, from North Africa, he became like a major, major theologian. And he was greatly influenced by, by Romans. Another really great figure was Martin Luther, 1500, the Reformation. Catholic priest, Catholic monk, desperately trying to find assurance of salvation. He was doing everything he possibly could. He, he used to whip himself literally. That's where the English term flagellation comes from. You know those, those whips with the, the different strands on, not just one, several. He would thrash himself to, to bring the body into submission, to be more like Christ. He was so desperate to, to be close to God. He knew there was more. He would fast and just about die in the process. He was in the, in the monastery. They would get to the lunch table, and Martin wasn't there. And they'd go to his cell, and there he would be, completely passed out, just exhausted, fasted himself almost to death, and all of that to gain an assurance of salvation. And it was him where this, this one scripture, um, he was walking along, and this one scripture burst into his heart. The just shall live by faith. And that's Paul's whole theme in Romans. We are justified by faith, in Christ. And it's got nothing to do with us. It's this amazing, amazing salvation from an amazing Savior. Okay, And that thing just broke into his heart. And he was free. And that's why he became, he, he became the figure of the Reformation. You know, he wrote, I don't know if you know about the 95 Theses. So he, he had 95 complaints against the Catholic Church. 95. And he went and nailed them to the Gutenberg door, the, the, the Catholic um, church door. I'll quickly tell you. So one was, um, yeah, no, we've, got, we've got all night, right. <laughs> one was, you never heard the Bible in your own language. You only heard it in Latin, as the priests read in Latin. The whole Eucharist, the, uh, the Holy Communion, was all in Latin. You know, the Catholics are, I can play dominoes better than you can. You know that? Okay. So, <laughs> and he said, only the, only the priests took communion. He said, that's not right. And so he named all these, 95 of them, by the way. And he knew he died for that. But his heart had, he had grasped the essence of salvation. He was justified by faith. And, and that's what switched him on. Um, I, want to, I want to particularly look at this verse now in um, chapter 1, verse 17. It's a very curious verse. Okay? Um, so Paul dives in in the subject of um, righteousness. And he says, for in it, sorry, that's where he follows on. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, 
For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. By the way, the Jew first for the simple reason that they were the custodians of God's covenant. Right? And so Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so Paul, being this, this amazing Jewish believer who missed the Messiah when he, when, he, when he finally meets Jesus on the Damascus Road, the whole puzzle clicks in for him as a Jew. And he sees this wonderful gospel from Genesis right through to Jesus. And, and that's why it's so powerful for him. So the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now listen, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Okay, so you'll see that there's a variation. The, the one in the ESV is closer to the original, and it's a very awkward verse. It's very awkward to actually interpret it. And so this faith for faith, what is it? So Michael Eaton says, when we believe, we are putting our faith in the faithfulness of Jesus and in the personal faith of Jesus. Our faith is, is faith in Jesus' faith and in Jesus' faithfulness. <laughs> you know, when, if you can understand that, then you'll understand the miracle of salvation. Because let me ask you, when you got saved, how great was your faith? You know, I've listened to many testimonies. Many, 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 many testimonies. I've never heard a person say, I just had such great faith. I just went and I said, Jesus, I accept you as my Savior. And blah, blah. Yeah. Have you ever heard testimonies like that? I haven't. I haven't. My own was, oh God, if you can help me, please help me. And I got radically saved. And so what are you doing? You're coming with your little faith in the faith and faithfulness of Jesus. And when you just put your hand up, his faith and faithfulness kicks in and we are saved by faith through grace. Right, let's have a look at the wrath of God. So Paul says the next verse, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So wrath, the word for wrath is orge, which means divine anger, divine displeasure. You know that at the beginning, Eve, Adam and Eve were cast out of Eden. Even they, 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 um, God had atoned for their sin, but they were cast out. And that was the consequence of, of their rebellion. And that act in Eden incurred the wrath of God. And my understanding is, the wrath, it's not that God is angry with me. He's angry with the sin that separates me from himself. And that's why Paul says, the wrath of God is against all ungodliness. And that is why that act of rebellion, which has gone right through the human race, and we'll study that line, we'll see how, how, how Jesus becomes the second Adam and undoes all that, um, that, um, that rebellious attitude has incurred the wrath of God and it's incurred the judgment of God. Which is very interesting to me because we always think of the coming judgment, don't we? But the earth's being judged right now. You know, every tornado, every earthquake, you know, everything that goes wrong in the world 
goes back to man's rebellion. So judgment has been falling on the earth for a long time. And we know that as we get to the end, it's going to get stronger and stronger because if you come to Revelation, you've got the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. And what, what Revelation is showing us is that the judgments of God are getting stronger and stronger against all ungodliness. What's very interesting in the seals and the trumpets, God is still seeking to reach a fallen world. So the judgments are falling and God is desiring that man repents. But when you come to the, the bowls, and it's very interesting, the, the Greek word here for, for, for divine anger is orge. When you go and have a look at the bowls in Revelation, and it talks about the wrath of God then, it's a different word. It's moved from orge to thumos. And thumos is the word for boiling over. So there's going to come a point in history, in human history, where God has given opportunity of opportunity after opportunity for man to repent. And it comes a point, and to me, it's not like God tips the bowls, it's like we do. It's like man does. In his wickedness, it's like this is rising, 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 and it's filling up these bowls, and they're going to tip out. But go and read there. It says, and they did not repent. Because if you haven't repent, repented under the seals and the trumpets, chances are you're not going to repent when, when the fullness of God's wrath falls. So, orge, divine anger. Uh, here's a, a quote um, from a very good scholar. The divine anger of God is not against man, but against all ungodliness and wickedness of men. In other words, it is the, sin, it, it is the sinful behavior that incurs the wrath of God. God's wrath is His divine displeasure. And by the way, I'm compiling all my notes. I'll be able to give it to you in a PDF uh, near the end. John Piper says this, The infinite, all-glorious creator of the universe, by whom and for whom all things exist, who holds every person's life in being at every moment, is disregarded, disbelieved, disobeyed, and dishonored by everybody in the world. That is the ultimate outrage of the universe. Now, a number of years ago, I, I, I was reading John Piper, and, and that's where I really had a deeper understanding of what I call the fracture of sin. The earth is fractured. You'll come to Romans 18 and you'll see Paul says, even the, the earth is crying out. It's like a woman in, in the pains of childbirth is needing to be released. The very earth we walk on is cursed. And it's fractured because of sin. And man in his makeup is fractured. In our nature we were fractured. And when I read John Piper, it just it made it so incredibly clear. So Romans 1.21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And what, is, what, is, what does Paul say elsewhere? He says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And so for anybody to turn and repent, they need the Holy Spirit to actually take the screen off and let them see the truth, because the truth will set you free. So now listen to this. I'm going to go through a whole number of things here because this was the passage that really grabbed me in a big way. This is what John Piper says. The glory of God is not honored. The holiness of God is not reverenced. The greatness of God is not admired. 
The power of God is not praised. The truth of God is not sought. The wisdom of God is not esteemed. The beauty of God is not treasured. The goodness of God is not savored. The faithfulness of God is not trusted. The promises of God are not relied upon. The commandments of God are not obeyed. The justice of God is not respected. The wrath of God is not feared. The grace of God is not cherished. The presence of God is not prized. The person of God is not loved. If you want to know what sin is, there's a description. And that's why I thought I must, I must make this stock so we understand the foundation of this case that Paul is building against man. It's not an unkind God who is angry with man. It is a God whose heart has been completely wounded, the one who created us as an, as an expression of love and for fellowship, has been deeply, deeply offended. And as we'll see, Jesus took that offense upon himself on our behalf to break through. Uh, you probably looked at this last week. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So I want to show you what Tim Kelly says. And I, know, I know you touched on idolatry, but I want to crystallize this for us. So Tim Kelly says, life, what, what is idolatry? So life only has meaning if. If I have power and control. If I find approval. If I have comfort. If I have security. If I have independence, if I have work, if I have my materialism and my comfort, all my things, um, I only have meaning if, 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 if I've got a religious code that I can almost control. So the bottom line is, if there's anything that we have, we have to have over and above God, then we have to call that an idol. That, that's very challenging which means good things can be idolatry. And here, here's, here's where we get to the center of it. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. And once again, I want to quote Tim Keller. So the word for lust is epithumia. And it literally means an over-desire. Uh, an all-controlling drive and longing. The main problem of our heart is not so much desire, desires for bad things, but our over-desires for good things. Our turning of created good things into God's objects of our worship and services. You know, we always think lust is like bad stuff. But if we are desiring anything that's going to take the place of our relationship with the Lord... It's a problem. And that is, that is our, our bent as human beings. That is the sinful nature um, that has a lust for these things. Chapter 1, verse 26. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. 
the, the Rome of the day was incredibly bad, fraught. Almost all of the emperors were homosexual. The whole society was completely, completely ungenerated and completely out of hand. I want to, I want to just read this um, from Tim Keller. He says, Recently many have attempted to suggest that the traditional understanding of these verses is mistaken, that this refers to people who act against their own nature, or that it refers only to promiscuous homosexual sex and not to long-term settled relationships. But unnatural relations is literally against nature. Parafusen. This means that homosexuality is a violation of the created um, nature God gave us. So, in this whole argument, which we're in the, in the middle of right now, and we, I don't think we're feeling it as much, but um, my daughter lives in England, and I've got friends in America, and they, they're much further down the road than us. Much further. So my grandson goes to school one day, and his teacher, a man, they come back from holiday, and he says, I've got an announcement. Now my, 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 my uh, grandson is 14. He said, I've got an announcement to make. He said, during the holidays, I've changed my gender. So my grandson says to me, Gaga, I don't know, must I call him Mr. or Mrs.? I don't, I'm confused now. My daughter's friend, not long ago, their nine-year-old came and said, the, the nine-year-old daughter came and said, I've decided to change my gender. So we're living, we, we're living in this, this age where this is a very real thing. And the church is, is seen as being legalistic and harsh. I think the reason why we're failing is that we are not loving everybody. You know what I'm saying? We can love the alcoholic. We can love the promiscuous guy, the philanderers, those who are messing around. But somehow we've got that category in a different category, and it's, it's not right. But we've got to get back to the Word and say, what does the Word say? So it's not about this text or that text. It's about God's created order. And to, what, what makes it very real for me is Jesus affirms what his father did at creation, making them male and female. Okay? Jesus affirms that and says, What God has joined, let no man separate it. But then you need to take it a step further in terms of looking at the big picture. If it wasn't an issue for God, if, like our critics say, this verse doesn't say that really, as long as it's a loving relationship, it's fine. Okay? Because that's what a lot of churches are saying now, so that's fine. You have to take it a step further and ask yourself, how come God has likened the church to the bride and his son as the groom? If God was that, is that serious about marriage between a man and a woman, then how can we say this text is out of line? Because that's the big picture we need to look at. It's about God's design. And we're going to find that 
a major challenge as we move forward in the church. But we are called to love them as we love anybody else. And, and not to get all bent out of shape about it. So, verse 28 to 32, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Once again, I just want to turn to uh, Tim Keller's list. This touches every person and every stratum of society. This, this grouping here that Paul talks about affects the economic disorder, the social disorder, the family breakdown, and relational breakdown. Sin, sin just breaks into every part of society and every part of life and distorts it and fractures the purpose for which we were made. So now, listen to what Keller says. It says, God gave them up to their desires. And that's, that's very frightening. You know, when a kid nags and nags and nags, better careful what you're going to give them, because if they're nagging for the wrong things and you're giving, you've got a problem, isn't it? But, but Paul says, God gave them, God gave them up. He, he, he said, okay, you want that so much, take it. And that's what's caused the havoc. So he says, this is the wrath of God to give us what we want too much, to give us over to the pursuit of the things we have put in, play, in the place of Him. The worst thing God can do to human beings is, in the present is to let them reach their idolatrous goals. His judgment is to give us over to the destructive power of idolatry and of evil. Isn't that true? When God says, okay, that's what you want so much, I'm going to give it to you. You know, it's like, it's like the people in, in the wilderness where they were going on at Moses, they had no meat and they wanted meat and they're pestering and moaning and complaining and God got angry and he says, right, meat, you've got it. And they just about ate themselves to death. Many people died of that. He said, I'll give you what you want if you think you know what's good for you. So as we will see, man has incurred the wrath of God since Eden, God's judgment has been experienced on earth. And part of that judgment is God giving man what he hankers after, which in itself brings judgment. And in, in all this process, God is, is still coming to the sinner, revealing his grace, revealing his love, and always giving an opportunity for salvation. So, chapter 2, we'll come to Paul expounding the judgment of God. And remember, he's building a case in the first three chapters to show how man is found guilty in the courts of heaven and how, in the most amazing way, God steps into history. Jesus becomes the offense. He becomes the sinner. You know that amazing verse in 2 Corinthians 5? It says, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that in him 
we might become the righteousness of God. And, and that's, that's where this wonderful intervention takes place. Um, and that's what Paul is just busy expounding for us. But by the time you get to chapter 3, Paul says in, in Romans 3, um, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. Have I got the right one? Just double check quickly. Three twenty-three. Yeah. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. And you, you can see when you read chapter 3, you can see how he's expounding on, on all that he's setting in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And it all comes to a, like a, a pinnacle in chapter 3. And uh, he talks about no one's righteous. Not, not one is righteous. And, and by the time you get to chapter 3, you begin to realize the miracle of God in Christ reconciling us to himself. The miracle which we'll really process is this, that, that I receive the righteousness of Christ. That's the miracle of our salvation. I cannot earn, I cannot earn righteousness. So we're going to look at the meaning of righteousness in, in the coming sessions and we're going to understand it. And then we'll see what a powerful thing it is that we become the righteousness of Christ. I mean, how do, how do, we, how do we stand in the courts of heaven? In our own strength and character. We haven't got a snowball's hope of standing in the presence of a holy God. But we've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And therefore we can stand there. So can we share some uh, questions or some comments that you want to make? And we can... Yeah, it's like the prodigal son, isn't it? The prodigal son says, give me what, uh, what you owe me. What, give me my inheritance now. The father knows it's not good for him, but he gives it to him. He gave, he gave it up. And then we know the wonderful journey of the prodigal son. He had to land up in the pigsty to remember what he had in his father. And so, so Luke 15 is a wonderful picture of the process of salvation. It's a wonderful picture. And you'll see as, as we process Romans, like when he comes to himself, how did he come to himself? Was it his own thinking? Was it his own cleverness? No, I believe that's where the Holy Spirit helped him understand. You have a father. You have an inheritance. You've squandered it. And that's where he begins to repent because repent means to turn. And that's when he said, I will go to my father and I will say I'm sorry. And there's a wonderful picture too because he says, I mean, he's rehearsed this whole thing. He says, you know, Dad, all I want, just make you a servant. I'm very happy. I'll, I'll stay down in the car at the bottom of the property and I'm fine. What is he doing? He's trying to work his way back. Father says, no ways. You're my son. You were lost. You're now you found. Put the robe on him, the ring, and it's a wonderful picture of salvation. And we're going to see how Paul processes this whole thing. It's the story of the prodigal son, but um, filled out by this wonderful book. You see, Paul says here in verse um, 18, he talks about in this ungodliness and unrighteousness, um, that in that unrighteousness they suppress the truth. And it's amazing how strong our human will is. That we can actually suppress the truth. It's like put it in the box. We know it's there, but don't let's not let it out because it's going to cause some big problems. Um, what would you say what would you say of the practical 
Well, if you, if you read the, the prayers of Paul, the apostolic prayers, so in Ephesians 1, verse 17, is a very powerful prayer. It says, I pray that the eyes of your understanding will be opened, that you'd have a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ. Now, I've been praying that prayer for many years over myself, over my wife, over my children, over my whole family on both sides. And we're a big family. And 90% are all believers. And God has been incredibly, incredibly faithful. You know, it's like what, what Ursula shared this morning. And it's this, it's this burden for people. But for our own journey, to me, when you are in fellowship with God, when you are in fellowship and you are communing with Him, you're not, you're not going through rituals and, and prayers as such. You are communing with Him. When you are in fellowship, those weak spots show up. And you know, God is incredibly faithful. And when we open ourselves, I mean, it's quite a frightening thing to actually open yourself completely because you don't know what's in the box. But God is loving. He's gentle. He's extremely kind. He's extremely patient. And that's why in this journey, Paul says, we are being changed from one degree of glory to the next. And this, he says, comes by the Spirit. So the more we fellowship with Christ in the Spirit, with the Father, and develop an intimacy, we become more and more aware of who we are and what's going on. And maybe sometimes it would be a person who shows you the fault or the Word. I don't know if you've had that experience where you're reading the Word one day and something just jumps out of you and it like grabs you and wakens you. So to me, the key is walking with an open heart. And as you walk with an open heart, as you're in fellowship with Christ in the Spirit and intimacy with the Father, he, He's going to show us those, those things where, where we haven't yet. And I think that's what, what Jesus is saying, that you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's when, it's when you've got a heart to grow and be molded and be shaped. It's like, it, it like maybe hurt you in the beginning, but the end is life. And, and joy and liberation. And um, I think you mentioned discipline. I think the discipline of the Christian life is that daily we, we are pressing into God and we're having an open relationship with Him. Because that's the essence of our Christian life. It's, it's fellowship. We've been saved for fellowship. Not a religion. We haven't been saved for, for rules and regulations. We've been saved for fellowship with the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Which to me is the most awesome thing. It's the most incredible thing that this almighty, glorious, holy Lord should invite me into the Godhead. That's why when you come to chapter 6, this thing of ba baptized into Christ is a radical, radical thing. I'm not baptized into religion. I'm not baptized into a church. I'm baptized into Christ. And I fellowship. John, go and read John's letter. And he's, he talks about that which you've seen and heard and so on and so on, that you may fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father. And, and this incredible thing that we've been drawn out of the world, out of darkness into light, into fellowship with the Father. And when we're living in fellowship, the Father will point out the shortcomings, not to make us feel small, but to liberate us. Because His, his plan is always good for us. I think love and acceptance. Where, where we live, across the road from us, is a middle-aged gay. And he's actually horrified that we've accepted him. 
<laughs> Seriously, he is. He's, he's actually said it to us. He's kind of horrified that we accept him. And I've prayed with him, and I keep praying for him. I pray, I pray for him and his mom every night when I go out into the garden, take the dogs out, and I pray over the neighborhood, and I pray over, I pray over him. And my, my challenge is to love that person and let God lead. I'm not God's policeman. You know, we've got this in a category all of its own. So never mind the guy who's utterly hooked on pornography or is a womanizer or is a menonizer, I don't know, <laughs> who's living a riotous life. No, no, we accept those people. You know, come, come, we'll share the gospel with you. But we've got this, we've got this category here and it's, it's not, a, it's not a separate category. It's what Paul is showing us. We are fractured. We are fractured and now we're leaning to our own understanding. And this seems good to us. What seems right to us actually is going to be death. And now we're in this massive war. And this, I think, is going to be part of the persecution of the church because when we stand up for truth, we are going to get a backlash. And it's not just on this issue. It's on many issues. You know, the arrogance of man is so powerful. Now, you go to Europe and you start feeding the arrogance of man. Is, there is no God. <laughs> we're in charge here. We're the clever ones. We're evolved. We've, we, we, we've evolved into these wonderful human beings. And that is idolatry of the grossest form. And uh, we, uh, uh, my daughter, again, one of the pastors in the church has had to stand down from his job in the church because in his counseling, he couldn't counsel as he wanted to because of the law. So he couldn't say with a free conscience that he is obeying that, uh, what the government has put in place. And so he's got to go outside of it to speak in. But, um, yeah, so just to sum up in your, in, in your question, I think that the greatest thing is acceptance. And um, to treat them like anybody else, yes. You see, this is where I think, this is just my personal opinion, this is where I think the church has made such a terrible mistake. Because we've vilified those people. So all we want to do, so vilified means, sorry, it's a, uh, it means like we've made them the villain, like the real bad people. No, no, so what I'm saying is, so, so we think we've got this duty to tell them what a terrible thing they're doing. But we don't do that with the alcoholic and we don't do that with the womanizer and we don't do that with the guys in pornography and, 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 and. Is it? You don't spend your first hour with an alcoholic and tell him how wrong he is and he shouldn't be drinking. That's religion. That's what the church has done so many times. You know, come to Christ, now do this. Read your Bible, pray, come to church, dress properly, blah, 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 blah. I'll pose you an interesting little question. <laughs> if you led a gay person to Christ tonight, would you allow him or her to be baptized? <laughs> my, my niece started sharing the gospel with a gay, a gay guy. And the poor guy, he was... He was in a bad place, just emotionally, whatever, whatever. And she shared the gospel with him, and he came to Christ. And they phoned me and said, can we baptize? And the answer is, of course. Because there are no categories. 
If you repent and believe, you'll be baptized. Right? Now the work is up to God. So to get back to your question, I think our biggest challenge is the loving and the sharing. And let God show the time and the place for that issue. You know, it's, it's, it's like saying one of these other so-called categories that we want to dive into the category and say, you shouldn't be doing pornography, you shouldn't be doing this, you shouldn't be doing this. No, let me introduce you to Christ. Let me introduce you to the gospel and let the gospel do its work. Absolutely. So that's why I say we're not God's policemen. And for some reason, we've become God's policemen for particularly that area. Yeah, you see, you're not accepting, you're not accepting their... You're not accepting their status. It's exactly the same. I'm not accepting a drug addict. I feel for the drug addict. I can't say to him, listen, China, get off your drugs. My, my calling is to lead him to Jesus because he needs a miracle in his life. So does the adulterer. So does the guy in porn pornography. They all need that miracle of the rebirth. And, you know, I've imagined myself because we've got very close friends of the family uh, that m my wife grew up with. We're very close friends of the family. And... He was in high school, uh, um, Victor Ladorum and whatever, whatever. All the girls are crazy about him. But he switched sides a bit later on. And, I mean, he's a, a super, super guy. He's a superhuman person. He's um, just a great guy. He's not saved, but he's a great guy. And his partner is uh, a pastor's son. And um, I sat with the father uh, in, in some of the, the, the celebrations we were together in. Uh, with the family. And he, he was a Nazarene pastor, Nochal. Because if you know the Nazarenes, you know they are right down the middle, Cyril. And, and uh, he, he just, he was broken inside. But you know, sadly, years later, I had another conversation with him. And now he had organized the scriptures to agree with it. You see, I've got friends, I've got friends in the ministry whose children when gay. So what happens is, out of their love for their children, they now modify their biblical stance. And that's when it gets very clever and very tricky. And that's where this thing of promiscuity comes in. Because I've listened to guys in our country having big debates on it. Uh, a big guy, I just can't think of his name now, he's very well known. Um, and they say, now hang on, if it's, if it's a promiscuous gay relationship, God's not happy. But if it's in a loving relationship, it's absolutely fine. You see, that's, that's how you twist it. And that's that you take that argument, but you're not being true to Scripture. You're not being true to the, the, the divine order of God. So getting back to the question, I've often thought to myself, what happens if they ask me the question? So now, as a Christian pastor, what do you think? And I'm, I'm going to have to be honest and say, look, as lovingly as I possibly can, uh, let me just share with you what, how I see God's plan and God's creation. You see, if you're an evolutionist, you don't have a problem, isn't it? Because then you might just evolve this way and this way and this way and everything's lacquer. But when you come to a creationist point of view, as God created male and female, then you've got a challenge. And, uh, yeah, I just think the church has handled it very badly. You know, when the church goes on a protest, yeah, and, I mean, the church goes into the streets with placards denouncing gays. 
And there's this whole other 90% of sinners in all sorts of other horrible stuff. It's equally as, as bad because it's, it's simply, um, we're all sinners. We've all got the fracture and it works out in different ways. And when you come to Christ, you come to the gospel, there's major adjustments. And look, let's be honest. It's very uncomfortable. That's the deal. We are uncomfortable. And then we want to impose stuff instead of accepting the person. If they really are, says, look, I've got to be honest with you. This is how I see God's creation. But I still, I still like you, you, you know? And that's where I think the church has, has blown it. So let me, before I forget, I want to tell you this quick story. So I had a discussion with a young pastor recently. And I had heard him talking about his in therapy and whatever for some stuff. And now, now here's another picture of the fracture. Because how many of you feel that gaming is a sin? Is gaming a sin? You know, the guys who play games on, on the internet and they're playing games. You know, the war games and all this kind of thing. Is it a sin? <laughs> okay. Okay, so it's a great example. It's a really great example. So, so, so let me tell you. Let me tell you what happened. So here's a wonderful young pastor. He loves the Lord. He's called into the ministry. He's blessing the people he's working with. But he goes to a therapist. The therapist says to him, right, number one, is it affecting your marriage? Yes. Is it affecting your time with God? Yes. Is it affecting your relationship with other people? Yes. Is it disturbing your health and your sleep patterns? Yes. He said, you are an addict. Right? It's the fracture, isn't it? It's the fracture. And this fracture causes all sorts of crazy problems. You know, like our, our kids, and this prayer this morning from, from Ursula, it's so true. Our, our kids, they, they don't have what I had. Or I should say, I don't have what they have. Where on a little phone, you've got all the debauchery of the whole world on one little phone. Isn't it true? It's like an it's like like atom, atomic bomb. So they, they've got it much harder in that sense. But then we've got to just trust God the same because we still hear of miracles. We still hear of people getting radically reborn. and We hear of people changing their lifestyles radically. I mean, addiction is a, is a, is a mark of our age, I think. Addiction to pornography, addiction to gaming, and uh, all sorts of things. Addiction to Facebook, <laughs> Instagram, just the phone. Because, you see, that is, that is, that is our bent. It's to please ourselves. And that's the essence of sin, isn't it? Sin is preferring myself to God. That's what it is. So for me, that is no different. It might be a lot more painful <coughs> because of all that it stands for. But what's the difference between my son becoming a gay or my son becoming a drug addict or becoming a womanizer or being hooked on pornography? So th that's our challenge, yeah. is to love them and say to them, listen, my boy, yeah. this is what I believe. I love you, but this is what I believe. This is what the scripture says, and I love you. And I, um, you can share the gospel, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
We hope you enjoyed this message from City on a Hill Church International. For more content and ways to connect, visit www.coah.co.za. Thanks for listening.